All right. Uh, we're going to get into our study this morning. We're continuing our series uh, out of the book of Mark called Jesus Against Religion. We're in a section of Mark's gospel um, where every single story focuses on and emphasizes a controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And every week, as we've seen, the religious leaders ask a question of Jesus and he responds, and it's helpful in showing us what's new about Jesus, what's novel, what's unique about his ministry, what sets him apart. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and open up um, our Bibles to Mark chapter 2 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible right in front of you, in the back of a pew, you will find find a black-bound Bible. The index at the front will help you find the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And we're going to turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to pick up this morning in chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to open your word, to hear it read and explained and applied this morning. We ask that your spirit would be functioning and active in our minds and in our hearts, uh, that you would instruct us uh, in the shape of your ministry. And as we've seen in the past few weeks, Lord, uh, the facets of religiosity uh, are, are bound deep in the human heart. And so we pray that you would loosen them this morning and that you would show us who you are afresh. And we pray, Lord, if there is new wine to be had, that you would find this morning new wineskins to put it in. In Jesus' name, amen. And so what happens in the text this morning is comparative in nature. The people who are very interested in Jesus, who have seen him do things that no one else can do, the casting out of demons and bringing about healings, uh, all of these things and preaching with authority, uh, have noticed a difference between Jesus' ministry uh, and the Pharisees who were those who had separated themselves to keep the Old Testament law and the traditions of the elders to the letter. 
uh, as well as the disciples of John. That's John the Baptist. And so John's ministry was one where he was calling people of Israel out into the wilderness to repent and to be baptized. And he had garnered many disciples who were looking for the repentance of Israel. Uh, And when you line up all three of them, the Pharisees, John the Baptist and his disciples, and Jesus, one of these things is not like the others. They look and they go, hey, wait a minute. Jesus' ministry is different, and it has to do with the issue of fasting. Now, uh, fasting is a regular, uh, regularly presented facet of Israel's worship within the Bible. Uh, annually, for the Day of Atonement, there was a national fast that was ca- called for Israel, um, but we often find it in times of mourning, uh, in times of seeking God's deliverance. It exists quite a lot. By this time, the Pharisees, at least, had started to uh, have a routine fast. Every Monday and every Thursday, they would, uh, they would fast as part of their habitual religious observance. And we can imagine that John the Baptist's disciples were doing the same things. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, we find Jesus most commonly uh, in the Gospels not, not eating, but eating. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke, one commentator says, across the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a table, on his way to a table, or leaving a table. He's just, his ministry is full of joy and eating. In fact, one of the accusations, one of the smear campaigns that goes around about Jesus is that he's a glutton uh, and a drunkard because he's always at the table, because he's always at these celebratory feasts. And so even last week, we saw him gathered with uh, many other tax collectors in the house of Levi or Matthew uh, and celebrating. And so it's the pattern that they're observing here and they're feeling the contrast. Now, it's worth pointing out here, uh, Jesus is not against fasting. And we don't have to even turn the page in most of your Bibles to see that. Remember, his ministry began as he was driven out into the wilderness and went on a long-term food fast, okay? Fasting is not the problem here. In fact, it's not really about a problem at all. It's about a difference. And uh, as we look at this difference this morning, it's once again helpful for us sorting out what makes Jesus unique. Now again, we've called this series Jesus Against Religion, and once again, I want to point out that it's very popular to be anti-religious in our day and age, not just outside the church, but oftentimes in Christianity, we are uncomfortable with this term. Um, Because of that, I've used it uh, as shorthand, but we need to remember again that that being anti-religion depends entirely on how we define that word, religion. You know, and so, uh, so when we look uh, at religion from some angles, when we uh, look at it as being a codified system of beliefs and behavior, that's relatively neutral. It doesn't mean that there won't be diverse opinions or divisions, but that's all of life, okay? What we mean when we say that Jesus is against religion is this propensity in the human heart to save ourselves, okay? And so this is man-made systems that present man-made approaches to God. uh, And even within the Judaism of the Bible, 
you know, uh, Israel being God's people, and even within the Christian church in the book of Acts, uh, and to this day, we still find this religious bent. In fact, I want to emphasize again, we find this religious bent outside of organized religion. Okay. The ability to draw lines and elevate ourselves uh, as being justified or in the right because we are right, to uh, look down on others, uh, to, have, um, to have a sense uh, of our own perfection and a much stronger sense of other people's imperfections, that's not a religious problem, it's not a Christian problem, it's a human problem. Okay. Um, and this question about fasting gives us a good window, a good fresh window into this. Okay. Now look again at Jesus' answer. Jesus asks a question in his answer. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Okay. And so he paints a picture here of a wedding. And he says, if there's one place where fasting is inappropriate, it's at the celebration we know as a wedding, okay? Uh, so let me suggest to you, in these days, if you were Jewish, you probably didn't, you know, save the date for the Day of Atonement to have your wedding on, right? You can't do both things at once. You can't celebrate and rejoice in what it means for there to be a new marriage and at the same time express what fasting is. You have to choose. You can't have a church picnic and an all-day fast, okay? You have to choose, okay? And so I want you to notice here that in doing so, the first difference he makes between the fasting of John's disciples and the Pharisees and his own ministry has to do with his presence, okay? Notice what he says. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Now, we'll get to this self-identification here in just a minute, because it's one thing to notice that a, a wedding is a party, and a fast is not, uh, and to ask, why does Jesus choose a wedding? Why, why not just a party? Why doesn't he re refer to, to a host and a table here? Why doesn't he say, when a host sets a table, you have to eat, right? Fasting is for another time. We'll come back to that in a second. But clearly here, his difference, the reason why fasting is inappropriate for his disciples has to do with the fact that he is currently with them. Okay. In other words, um, Jesus' ministry expresses not just his presence, but the very presence of God, okay? When, when religion is functioning, it assumes distance. It assumes it, okay? It says, effectively, there's something wrong that stands between me and God, and so oftentimes religion is about building the bridge that connects us and God how to get back to God, how to restore that relationship. In fact, fasting itself often uh, contains that aspect, okay? Um, fasting is often in the Bible tied to 
putting on sackcloth and ashes, which is poor and dirty clothing, um, as well as, uh, as um, individual and national repentance. In other words, some of the places we find fasting in the Bible is when disaster is impending and there's a recognition that that disaster is coming because of sinful behavior. And so it's a form of repentance. It says something has gone wrong and it's an expression. It doesn't necessarily fix the distance, but it expresses the desire to fix the distance. Now, one of the things that's also seen here that's worth pointing out um, is the, distant, uh, the distance between uh, a, uh, a religious practice and a dead ritual. Okay. As I mentioned, fasting was done um, sometimes because God had called a fast. Uh, fasting was done sometimes in a time of national repentance. Sometimes it was done in a time of seeking the Lord. Sometimes it was done just out of a desire to hear from God. For all those reasons, we see fasting in the Bible. Um, but the Jews had just made it part of their regular and routine repertoire. In fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out that many of those men fasted, not because of their relationship with God at all, but be, to be seen as being more righteous by other people. And so they would publicly go out in their uh, sackcloth and ashes, and they would not wash their face for the day, and they would uh, you know, bear the burden of hunger very visibly and publicly. So people would look on and go, wow, I'm impressed, right? That was the idea. And in the same route, uh, they also thought that their fasting and all of their religious commitments would be impressive to God. Now, we need to recognize something uh, that our culture has a tendency to miss, which is Jesus doesn't have a problem with the distance, okay? When we say here that, uh, that religion implies and responds to a distance, I'm not saying here that Jesus comes in and says, hey, there's no problem. Everything's a-okay. There is no sin issue. There is no distance between you and God. Everything's cool. That's not what Je Jesus' ministry represents, and yet at the same time, it expresses here the presence, not just of Jesus, but as we've seen in Jesus, of God himself, and that makes fasting inappropriate. Now, he says in verse 20 that there will be a time for fasting. Read it again, verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. The first thing I want you to notice here uh, is that that is a, not a normal part of a wedding, Right? Uh, the phrase there for taken away is a tremendously strong one, okay? We could put kidnapped in there and not do any uh, injustice to the text, okay? That's not usually how a wedding ends, okay? Yes, in a modern we wedding, um, you know, due to the honeymoon, they may drive off in their just-married car, uh, and some of you who are single may feel the loss of that drive-off in a stronger way, right? Because now... It's a married couple and not just your single friend. Those things are true. Um, but when he uses this language, he's clearly and subtly looking forward to his own crucifixion. In fact, it's ironic a little bit uh, that there's a direct relationship between his being taken away uh, and the ministry of the Pharisees in particular, who by the end of this series, in just two more weeks, are going to have had it with Jesus and start plotting to put him to death. 
And so here we need to recognize there's a tension in Jesus's ministry. It is both celebratory and somber. Okay? Jesus is, is you know, criticized for celebrating too much, and he's also known as a man of sorrows. Uh, Jesus comes to be with people, but he also comes to, uh, to die at their hands. All of these things go together. Um, but when he says here, they will fast in those days, it brings up a question, which is, okay, so... If Jesus is not present here this morning, if you didn't shake his hand on the way in, then should we be fasting? And the easiest way to answer this question is just to look at the men who were gathered around Jesus at this point, the ones who were followers of Jesus and are currently not fasting, and then turn the pages until after Jesus leaves and say, okay, now that he's gone, do they fast? And the answer is clearly yes. Okay? As much as my low level of self-control and love of food would like it to be the contrary, clearly fasting should be a natural and biblical part of a Christian's life. It's just unremovable. But it is different. Okay? It's different because although Jesus uh, is forcefully taken away, is killed, uh, at the end of that weekend, after all of this happens, He's miraculously, by the power of God, resurrected. And even when he ascends into heaven, what is the final thing in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus says to his disciples? He says, lo, I am with you always. Okay? And so it's not that Jesus isn't present in a sense, but in a profound and unique way, post-resurrection, Jesus is present permanently and totally with his people. And so that changes uh, the way fasting works. Okay, let me assemble all of the pieces for us this morning. Religiosity at its worst tries to build a bridge back to God based on our own performance, sometime based on our own measure of distance. And so we go, well, I'm pretty sure the only thing God has against me is these things, and we build our little you know, three-foot bridge for this microchasm that we think separates us from God. But we're doing the measuring, right? Um, or, uh, or we go, well, we're going to bridge it in these ways, okay? Um, here, Jesus doesn't ignore the gap. He doesn't ignore the distance. He doesn't look back at the book of Leviticus and go, guys, you got it totally wrong. You think it's so hard to be in God's presence with the washings and the ritual purity and all of the sacrifices and stuff. He says, he doesn't go, that's just wrong. God is present. He's with us. He, he doesn't say that. Instead, he comes and he bridges that gap, but not from our position reaching up in heaven to try and climb to a height we cannot climb, but from his position in heaven coming down and doing what we could not do. I've always been struck by the words of Pastor Chuck Smith uh, in California who died a few years ago. He said, when I think about it, it is a completely different issue to ask, can God in his infinite power bridge the distance between God and man than to ask, can a finite man do the same thing? 
And that's what Jesus has come to do. And not, once again, not just to be present, not just to take on flesh and to live amongst the people and to fellowship with human beings, but also to do something about that distance, to recognize the full reality of sin and its consequence, that sin brings death and therefore separates us from the God who is life, that sin is personal to God because he's personally created us, because we belong to God. And so when we sin against ourselves or against other people or against the world, we sin against the creator of all of those things. All of those things are real, but Jesus comes and he meets that need. He resolves that tension. He pays the penalty for our sins. And what that means is, we no longer function, even when we fast, from a scarcity mentality. It means that we no longer function, even in obedience, from a place of obligation. It means we no longer are working to prove ourselves to men or to God. Okay? And that's a very different thing. If you want to understand how fasting fits in the Christian life, I would suggest to you John chapter 4. This is an occasion where Jesus is passing through Samaria and he's hungry and he's thirsty. So they stop for the day and the disciples go off to get uh, some food at the market so that they have something to eat. And while Jesus is there, a woman comes to the well and he begins to talk with her. He opens the conversation by asking her for water because he is thirsty. But by the end of the conversation, he's led her to the conclusion that he is the promised Messiah. And that moment actually changes the entire dynamic of the city of Samaria because she goes and tells the whole city, I found this man. He told me everything I ever done. Could he be the Messiah? And so there's this huge uh, revival that breaks out in Samaria. But when the disciples come back, they've got the food in hand. They left Jesus tired, weary, hungry. And now he seems completely distracted with other things. And they're pulling out the food and they're digging in and Jesus is just sitting there and they say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they're pretty practical fishermen, so they go, what, did somebody bring you a meal, right? And he says, no. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, he says, what has just happened in this city, what's going on in this town right now, that is my satisfaction. And so eating is no longer necessary. Fasting for a Christian does not say, God, I'm not enough. Here's the proof to make me enough. It does not say, here, God, maybe you'll accept me now. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It says, God, what you have is more important to me, more necessary to me, and more desired than food, and so I'm going to prioritize your presence. I'm going to prioritize listening for your voice, okay? In other words, we can can draw this out and extend this to uh, everything in the Christian life. Jesus offers forgiveness, the gift of grace, fully and freely. He takes all of our sins, and simply by by trusting in what he has done on the cross, uh, he takes all of our sins past, present, and even future, and pays for them fully. 
And so Paul says, if you're a Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation, no impending judgment. The sentence has been paid in full, and God justly and freely forgives you because of the blood of Christ. But that doesn't leave us left in a place where obedience or righteousness is now irrelevant. Okay. It's not like uh, when you can play you know, fast and loose in Monopoly because you've got the get-out-of-jail-card-free get just sitting there. That's not how salvation works in the Christian life. When you understand the significance of what Jesus Christ has done, it does change the motivation for our righteousness. In fact, in doing so, it changes the quantity and the quality of our righteous acts. But it doesn't remove them entirely. It does something new. Simply what it does is it instills in us love. Okay? Religion says, I must do these things to please God. What Jesus is talking about here, what he presents in his presence, what he's accomplished in his cross says, I love you fully and completely enough to deal with all of these things at cost to myself, and therefore we want to please him. We, have already, we already find ourselves in the pleasure of God, and so we respond naturally in seeking to please him. In other words, love is the primary motivation for good works in the Christian life. We don't do these things because we have to, but because we want to. Because we know the one who asks of us these things has our best interest in mind. Because we know the cost uh, of our relationship was born on his shoulders, and so we desire to lean into it because we want to know him more deeply and more fully and more truly. Okay. There was a preacher in the Scottish Reformation by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And Thomas Chalmers had been a pastor for many, many years, and he was frustrated at the low quality of holiness within his congregation. And he let them know it week after week after week. Just slammed them with the clear call to righteousness in the scriptures and demanded, uh, you know, that they shape up and do what they were supposed to do. And then he had uh, an encounter personally with God's grace. And the next sermon he preached, he called, and this is in the old English you would expect from the days of the Scottish Reformation, the expulsive power of a new affection. And this is what he argued. He said, the things that you do in your life, you do because you love what you love. Okay? Your will is bound to your heart. You do what you do because you love what you love. And he suggested then the only way to stop doing the things you do or do things you don't want to do is when you're invaded by a new love that changes your priorities. The expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, as Christians, we, uh, we aren't called to just not do the things we want to do. We're given new desires. And that reorients our life. We have a new agenda, a new trajectory in life. Okay. Here's another way I think we can put it. Okay. Religion talks about works that we accomplish so that we live. Do these things and you will live. That's the anthem of religion. But what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished, he gives new life, and if it's really there, if he's made you alive in Christ Jesus, like Paul talks about in Ephesians, then your life will bear fruit. 
Works are something that you do, but fruit stems out of who you are. It's that change in status, change in position, change in empowerment, because God doesn't just forgive us, but as it talks about later here, he's got this new wine to give us, this picture of the Holy Spirit. He wants to create something new. And so, once again, the issue is not, is it right for Christians to fast? The issue is, why do we fast as Christians? The issue is not, should Christians obey the law? It's, why do we obey the law? There's a hymn that we sing on, uh, on occasion. It's also an old hymn from about the time, interestingly enough, of the Scottish Reformation, and it therefore has also a difficult title. It's, Love Constraining to Obedience. But there's a line in it that always gets me, and it, it, it captures this difference. This difference between darkness and light, between death and life, between not a Christian and a Christian, between religion and knowing Jesus personally. And this is what it says. It says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, will turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's what's happening here. Okay. I, what I'm suggesting to you is it's not that Jesus comes and starts this party and it's like, um, it's like the promises in uh, a multi-leveling market campaign, right? Where it's all laid out there in its front and then once he's got you, it's like, okay, now you've got to keep the contract. Now you've got to do the footwork and make up for it. It's not that. Uh, it's instead uh, that what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, is so overwhelmingly profound to the degree that John just says, this is love. He says, this is its definition. If you want to know what love is, you turn to the passion narratives in the Gospels. This is love, that God sent his son to die for us. That's the definition. When that takes hold of your heart, when you receive it for what it is, it changes you from the inside out changes your desires. It works in you in a different way because Jesus is already present and working, not distance, uh, not at a distance that we need to overcome. Okay? But the second thing we see here is, is not just this idea of Jesus' presence is new, um, but also this idea of joy. Okay? And of course, these things go hand in hand, um, but fasting is a manifestation of mourning. And it may be mourning your own sin. It may be mourning the impending disaster. Uh, we find fasting being a normal and natural part of Jewish funerals, okay? Because, because you're grieving full body, basically. It's also, as we've mentioned, an expression of repentance. And so it's a mourning of our own sins before God. All of that is true. But Jesus says, what I'm doing here is more like a wedding. And where does he put himself in the wedding? Not as the party planner. Not as the master of ceremonies, but here he refers to himself as the groom. He says, here I've come, and notice what he does here. He says, basically, if you want to understand my ministry, you need to look at a wedding. And this is not the only place he does so. In fact, we find it in the mouth of John, speaking to John's disciples in the Gospel of John, and he says, uh, so here's what happens. John's disciples come and they go, hey, John, you know, Jesus, he's baptizing more people than you are now. Aren't you bothered by that? And he says, you know, the best man, I'm going to paraphrase in modern English, the best man rejoices 
when the groom is with the bride. He must increase, but I must decrease. He knows his place. He says, I'm only here to facilitate the wedding, but I'm not on the stage. I'm not the one getting married. He says, Jesus is. In one of Jesus' parables, he says, the kingdom of God is like a wedding a king threw for his son. Why? Why that picture? Why not a feast? Why not a commencement ceremony? When we get to the book of Revelation, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he looks in heaven, and what does he see? He sees Jerusalem descending like a bride adorned for her husband, and she hears all of heaven rejoicing, saying, how blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says, if you want to understand what I've come to do, it's a celebration, it's a party, it's a feast, and specifically, it's a wedding. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, after exhorting husbands to love their wife like Christ loved the church, and wives to submit and respect to their husbands uh, as the church does to Christ, goes through, goes all the way back to Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he finishes in Ephesians 5 saying, Brothers, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. He says these verses don't find their full and final fulfillment in the relationship you have romantically with another individual. In some way deeper, they're about the relationship God desires to have with us. In other words, the presence that Jesus is talking about here is the presence that we find in marriage. The permanent, the committed, the full, uh, full exposed and open self-giving that marriage is designed to be is merely designed, Paul says, as a picture, built as a window into the relationship God has with us. And God's taken the first step in that. He invites us into that relationship, one of love and intimacy and care and closeness. And so therefore, it's about joy. When the Bible calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, the reason we do so is because we want to be doing the work that Jesus is doing. We want to be where he is, working where he is, following the presence of his spirit. Uh, when we give up things in our life that we desire, we do it with the same lack of cost that a newlywed does when they give up a morning with some hobby because they'd rather be with their wife. When they turn down an invitation to go somewhere because they'd rather be with their husband. Right? This, this is the function of the way the Christian life works. And so here, this is uh, in his ministry represented like it were a wedding. Now it's a weird wedding because it culminates and the great vow, the great I do, till death do us part, is a crucifixion. But his entire ministry leading up to that is one of joy and celebration. And it's worth pointing out, in our day and age, a wedding may be three hours and then the couple leaves for a honeymoon. In this context, it's seven days and the honeymoon happens in the middle of it, right there in the tent, okay? Uh, it is a community celebration event. It's one that is significant and Jesus' ministry reflects that because he's come with joy, not with mourning. Now, repentance. 
And sorrow for sin is a significant part of becoming a Christian. It has to be. Because we cannot, we cannot understand what Jesus did apart from the seriousness of sin. We cannot explain the fact that he had to die apart from our need for him to die for us. Okay. But that sorrow is overwhelmed with the joy of the fact that Jesus willingly and freely and fully died for us. And so, even here, it changes, it changes repentance. Because, as Paul says in Romans, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, there are other reasons to repent. Fear is a major motivator, and sometimes it's, you know, it, it's not the best motivation, but it gets the job done. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is not fear, but love. And love casts out fear. It removes the torment in relationship. It takes the question out of, is my life enough? Can I actually do it? It gives us the grade before the class is over. And that frees us up to lean in and study the material and do our best. Joy makes all the difference. Now, after giving this explanation, he then gives two illustrations. One comes from from tailoring, from clothes making, uh, from garning or darning clothes, uh, and the other comes from, uh, from making wine, storing wine. One is simply uh, that if you have a tear in your clothes and you're going to patch it, you have to use pre-shrunk material to do so, right? Because if you just take a brand new piece of cloth and patch up an old piece of clothing, as soon as it goes through the wash and dries, uh, uh, the patch will shrink, but the clothing has already been shrunk. And so it will pull at the most weak part of the fabric and end up making a worse tear, right? The second one has to do with wine and specifically when it mentions here new wine in a new wineskin, okay? So these wineskin would have been made uh, generally out of goat skins. They would have been sewn up uh, and over time a goat skin, uh, you know, loses its pliancy, its suppability, it becomes like leather is, soft, but stiff. But the problem with wine is through fermentation, uh, which is a very gassy process, it really strains and pushes at the material. And so if you've got a brand new batch of wine that you're going to be fermenting, you put it in a container that can take the pressure of that process. Now why is Jesus using these illustrations? Obviously here, there's two things. There are uh, old wineskins or old clothing, and then there's something new. Right? That's, that's the clear point of the illustration. We have to get the logic of the question. Go back to the beginning. What did they ask? Why don't you do like the others? Why don't you fast like the Pharisees, like John's disciples? Why are you different? What are they expecting? Remember, these, this is just the common people who ask this question. They believe in Jesus. They stand with Jesus. They're interested in Jesus. But what do they see him as? Primarily, they see him as a reformer. They go, why don't you just step into the institution that is, the practices that are, and improve them? Why don't you just enter in and do the same things as everybody else, but, but with the added benefit of, of doing it rightly? And Jesus says, you don't understand what I've come to do. I haven't come to fix I haven't come to reform or repair. I've come to do something that's completely new. And that's the last point here. Okay. 
we've seen that the difference here for us is whereas religion rightly recognizes the distance between us and God and wrongly thinks that there's a way that we can fix that. But Jesus bridges that gap freely and fully in his own death. Whereas religion emphasizes the mourning and, uh, and the sorrow and work then comes from that place, Jesus is about joy. It's a celebration. It's a wedding. And then lastly here, whereas religion uh, is, it, um, in this sense, religion is like barnacles, okay? There's nothing wrong with the boat that we would call Judaism. It's God-designed. The law is God-given. It contains, in fact, the coming of Jesus. It's all one piece. We need to be careful uh, against throwing it under the bus, but it is like a boat covered in the barnacles of human tradition, of misunderstanding, and of self-effort. I'll remind you that what's going on in Leviticus is not God is distant, and therefore we need to do things to get him to come with us. It's No, God is present in the tabernacle, and that's part of the problem because we have a holy God and an unholy people. How is this going to work? Remember that it's not Israel who marches out of Egypt to go looking for God in the wilderness. It's God who powerfully comes into Egypt and delivers them and calls them out. Okay? God is always the initiator, and we are the responder. But with time and without uh, understanding the significance of our redemption in the cross, any true boat grows barnacles of religion. And so here he says, I'm not here, I'll put it this way, I'm not here to be another Moses. I'm not here to be a lawgiver, but a law fulfiller. I've come to do something different, to do something new. And it's worth pointing out here that this statement is still true. If we come to Jesus to just fix what we already have, to just patch up where we fall short a little bit, if we come to Jesus and we take the religious mindset that we already have and we just look for an improved model of it in Jesus, if we seek to graft Jesus into our current understanding, our current value system, our current beliefs, it doesn't work. You can't take Buddhism, which predates Jesus by about 400 years, and just graft Jesus into it. He won't even fit in Judaism, and Judaism is custom fit. Okay? What Jesus came to do is something new, and it's the same in your life practically. If you come to Jesus because you think he'll, he'll make you a better vegan, you're going to be disappointed. If you come to Jesus uh, as merely a moral teacher or an ethical instructor, you miss out on what he's doing here. The problem with us uh, may be that there's a hole in the pants, but the pants are old. Jesus wants to give us something new. The problem with us uh, is that we are old wineskins, and Jesus wants to do something fresh. He doesn't want to just change a part of you. He wants to change you. He doesn't just want to fix or repair or restore. He wants to give life where there is death. He wants to resurrect. And once again, this changes things in a way that if we're honest with ourselves is a little bit scary. There is a significant facet of surrender in the Christian life. The proclamation of what it means to be a Christian is summed up in the Bible in three words. Jesus is Lord. 
And then parenthetically, because I find it helpful for my own pride, I add right after that, and I am not. Right? If Jesus is Lord, uh, then, then we are not. As H.A. Ironside used to say, if Jesus is not Lord of all in your life, then he is not Lord at all in your life. Okay? It, it is ultimate allegiance that Jesus requires. He sets it up in the Gospels against family, unless you comparatively hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, your spouse, and even yourself. You cannot be my disciple. He says discipleship is a daily act of taping, taking up your cross and following me and de denying yourself. All of those things uh, Jesus says, all of them he expresses um, that convey this point of final and total allegiance. And it's a scary thing to surrender your old wineskin. It's a scary thing to come to Jesus not just for a tune-up or to bridge that last little gap, but as completely destitute and in total need. It's a scary thing to surrender fully to Jesus to make him Lord and say, all right, you tell me what to believe. You tell me what right and wrong is. You tell me what the good life looks like. You tell me what I should value. But, again, we need to view this through the lens of what Jesus came to do. That we have evidence of God's righteousness and holiness, but also his mercy and his love in that self-same evident uh, event, the cross. Right? There, we understand that despite the fact that the distance created between us and God is not created by God, but us. Demonstrating the fact that it's not God is lost and we can't find him, but we who are lost. Demonstrating the fact that it's not us who asked God to help, but God initiated with help and then invited us into it. When we see all of those things, then surrender becomes obvious and natural. In Romans chapter 12, after laying out the entire gospel message of Romans, which begins with the fact that we all need a Savior, that that Savior is Jesus and is received by faith and not by the works of the law, that God has also sent his Spirit to empower us so that we can fulfill the law with God's help, all of these things. He lays this all out, and then when he gets the application in the book of Romans, he says this, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy, read chapters 1 through 11, because of everything God's already done, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable response of worship. The cost of the cross of Christ makes our living sacrifice rational, reasonable, the obvious next step. We surrender ourselves fully to God in Jesus Christ because Jesus surrendered himself fully to our hateful, crucifying hands. Fully to God's need for propitiation, the full wrath of God that we deserve. Christ's victory is surrender. And so we go, yes, to the king of the universe. Yes, to the authoritative creator of the world. Yes, to the one whose name is above every name whom we must get account. 
give account to. All of those things are true, but we also go to the one who died for us. We go to the one who demonstrated his love for us so significantly and completely that we can trust him fully and totally. We go to the one who we never have to ask, does God have my best interest in heart? Is he really looking out for me? To quote Paul one more time, he says, if God has already given us his son, why would he withhold any good thing? That's the mentality of the Christian. But I want to recognize again, every day for us, it's a fresh question. Will we surrender fully to him? Will we give up the places where we've tightly gripped around our own desires and values? Will we step down from the throne of calling the shots? Will we, uh, you know, limit our ability to know right from wrong and seek a fresh new wine? This is why Jesus is different. This is what the difference is. And so, once again, the daily obedience that's required of a Christian stems from love. The love of Christ compels us. It's done in joy because it speaks of God's presence, of the work he's already done, and invites us into deeper knowing him and being like him. Uh, and it's always, always, always a new gift from God that doesn't fit in old boxes. It's good that the church has reformers. It's good that there's voices who speak us up and call us back to the things that God has said and the things that the Bible teaches. But when God works in our lives, he doesn't bring reformation but resurrection. And we can't have both. You can't schedule an appointment for a tune-up and get a new life. You have to come with the full understanding of your need and full surrender. Let's pray. Lord, I sense that there's many of us who are in a season this morning where we go, yes, those things are good on paper, but right now I don't feel the presence. I don't know the joy. I'm not captivated by love. I don't feel that expulsive power of a new affection. And the worst thing we could do in those moments, Father, is seek to fix it ourselves. To settle for ritual and routine and going through the motions. Instead, Lord, we lay ourselves before you open and freely this morning uh, and we ask that you would do a new work. And I pray as well, Lord, um, that we would know the fellowship of following Christ. That we wouldn't see our life as just holding out and doing the right thing but good will come eventually, Lord, but that we would be filled with your present goodness and your past faithfulness in the cross of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would make that one ultimate loving act the lens, the window through which we view all of life 
and that as we look through the window of your cross, uh, our circumstances would be transformed. Our motivations would be laid bare and renewed, and our works would change from a drudgery to a natural and obvious response to your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just do what we, ex- what we would expect. And that you don't come just doing what we feel is the greatest need. But that you, knowing us more deeply and fully, get to the core of our problems. And so again, Lord, as a church, collectively, we just want to surrender before you. Help us to know the feast. Help us to enjoy the wedding. Help us to feel the love of the groom and to return it and enjoy the intimacy that you desire with us, which is not just a maker of rules, Lord, but a remaker of people. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.